Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. We are thrilled to have a returnee today uh, because we basically had told him he was going to have to return when we interviewed him last time because he was writing an excellent new book. It's Simon Hall who previously came on to talk about 1956 and he's back. Alina, what's he going to talk about today? See, I was so excited for 1956. This is right up your alley. You're super excited about this one. So we're doing a bit of a swapsie at this point. Uh, We are going to be talking um, about... 10 years, 10 years, four years, four years forward from 1956. We're talking about 10 days in Harlem, Fidel Castro and the making of the 1960s. Brilliant. So, Simon, you've done it again, haven't you? You've, you've done a sweeping snapshot of the world. Uh, thanks. I've, I've tried to. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, it's one of the things that first attracted me to the to the story, really, not just that it, it was a, a, a kind of an episode full of kind of excitement and and drama and kind of extraordinary capers, but that it offered a way to talk about big, uh, big themes in history: um, uh, the Cold War, decolonization, the start of the '60s, the Cuban Revolution, all packed into these ten um, ten days. Writing this kind of history terrifies me, so I'm so glad you do it and do it so well. <laughs> I never have to. Before we delve into the book um, and the 18th of September 1960, can you give us a bit of an overview of what was happening in the world at the time, more specifically the situation in Cuba? Yeah, I can definitely try to do that. I mean, in a way, kind of everything is uh, is uh, is kicking off um, on the on the kind of global stage. So you have. Um, uh, it's one of those moments where the Cold War is becoming increasingly, it's, has, it's having one of its kind of moments, I suppose, the, the, the relations between the two superpowers, between the Soviet Union and the United States, are um, kind of ratcheting up. The, the previous year, Nikita Khrushchev had visited the US and it had gone pretty well. Um, it had been a, a big a big success. It ended with him meeting with President Eisenhower and um, at Camp David for, for talks which were pretty cordial and there were I think some reasonable hopes that there might be kind of meaningful moves to kind of de-escalate the Cold War but all that really went to pot a few months later when um, Gary Powers and his U-2 spy plane was shot down over Soviet airspace and that really infuriates Khrushchev and it, it leads to a real souring of, of superpower relations. At the same time in 1960 you have um, a really dramatic escalation or acceleration of decolonization across Africa um, in the autumn of 1960, more than a dozen newly independent African countries join the United Nations. 1960 is the so-called Year of Africa. This is the year of Harold Macmillan's uh, Winds of uh, Change speech in, in Cape Town. Um, and um, in, in Cuba, you have Fidel Castro really 
cementing the Cuban um, revolution and in the process um, throwing Cuban-American relations into the, uh, well, heading them towards the deep freeze, I suppose. So uh, this, um, in, in 1959, the spring of 1959, um, Fidel's government had passed a major agricultural reform act, which had challenged the, uh, the power, the economic power of many of the big American sugar, uh, sugar companies. And then in, uh, throughout 1960, uh, uh, the, the new Cuban government continues um, with quite a, a radical series of economic reforms, you know, intervening, nationalizing, expropriating. Um, and this has um, implications for, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the really significant American investments in Cuba. Uh, I think America has about a billion dollars invested in Cuba in 1960, which is about 19, million, uh, $19 billion in today's money. And um, Washington is increasingly alarmed by these economic uh, policies and also by a, what they view as a kind of authoritarian turn, I suppose. They see that the, the Cuban government is you know, it's purging the judiciary, it's bearing down on the free press, it seems to be moving in an authoritarian direction. And so really throughout 1960, tensions, relations between the US and, the, and Cuba are, are deteriorating. And there's a really quite um, animated, quite, quite vicious, quite nasty sort of war of words between the two sides. So as we approach the autumn and the opening of the General Assembly, the, the kind of mood, the mood music in terms of Cuba and the United States is, is pretty poor. So let's stick to this um, to, to, to the subject of Cuba. You spoke about Fidel Castro. Some of our listeners may not quite not know who Fidel Castro is, but he is a major player in your book. It is more or less cent- centered around him. So can you tell us a little bit about him? And you actually compare him to JFK, don't you? Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, I, I was sort of struck by um, some of the similarities between between the two. So that, I mean, they're both young. Um, you know, Fidel is uh, I think he's thirty four. In, in 1960, he's, he's about uh, 10 years younger than, 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 uh, than John Kennedy. And, um, you know, both, both these guys are born into relative, well, born into privilege, really. I mean, um, Fidel grew up on a, on a, on a, on a sugar plantation in the, west, west, in the east of Cuba in Oriente province in a, in a kind of grand sort of um, uh, colonial style mansion. Uh, like JFK, um, he grew up in the shadow of a of a sort of domineering father, a kind of the patriarch of the of the family, um, Fidel, like um, like Kennedy, was um, renowned for his oratory. Although they have very different styles, um, Kennedy's one of Kennedy's most famous speeches, his inaugural address in 1961, is is just 14 minutes long. It's just over a thousand words, and you know, of course, Fidel is renowned for giving speeches that last sort of half the day um so they're very different in that in that sense uh, but they're figures who also come to embody the the hopes of a of a, of a generation they, they both become kind of icons of the of the 1960s so, so they are sort of f- f- familiar i mean fidel is a he's a very different kind of character he's um as a child he was always kind of rebellious he was known as um el loco the, the crazy one at one point he tried to organize the, the, the workers on his father's plantation into a into a union and, organ, and kind of encourage them to go on to go on strike for for better um, for better for better wages. Um, he goes off. Fidel goes off to the University of, of Havana in 1945 to study uh, to study law. But he's almost immediately consumed by the world of student politics, Cuban politics. Politics is his is his um, first 
uh, first love really and he um you know gets really stuck into the the kind of cut and thrust of, of student politics in Havana in the 1940s um in 1952 he's planning to run for office he's planning to run for election to the Cuban uh, parliament in the general election that's scheduled for 1952 um but those plans are are ruined really when um uh, General Batista um, stages a, a coup, returns to power and suspends the constitution. And really from that moment on, Fidel uh, becomes associated with the politics of, 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 um, of revolution. So in 1953, um, he, he embarks on a, it's a pretty foolhardy um, attempt to, to spark a, a revolution or at least an uprising by um, leading an assault on, the, on a military barracks in, um, in Santiago, um, Cuba's second city. It, it fails. It's a dismal failure. Fidel is, is captured. Many of his comrades are, 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 are killed, but, but he's captured alive, is put on trial and is uh, sent off to prison. Um, he's released a couple of years later in an amnesty, f- heads off to exile in Mexico. And then at the end of 1956, he returns, famously returns to Cuba aboard the Granma and begins a kind of guerrilla war uh, against the Batista government, which eventually uh, triumphs in January of 19. 19- of 1959. Um, so that's a very sort of potted history of, 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 uh, of Fidel. Um, this takes us um, to the whole theme of your book, doesn't it? Which starts with the 18th of September, 1960. And it's the 15th UN General Assembly. Okay. First of all, what is this gathering of world leaders and who are the world leaders that we will see at this particular meeting? Yeah, so the, um, uh, the 15th General Assembly is, is one of those big kind of set-piece diplomatic uh, occasions of the, of the post-war uh, period, really. It's one of the, the most significant General Assemblies. Um, and that's largely because um, of the Year of Africa and the, the fact that so many newly independent countries are joining the UN at that, at that moment. And it, but it's also um, become famous because it, it, it uh, draws together such a, a great um, kind of assembly of world, of world leaders. Um, so, you know, pretty much, um, all the big players are there. Um, the, the main figure who doesn't go is, um, the, is the, the French leader, um, Charles de Gaulle, who, um, uh, who decides, decides not to go, but, uh, but everybody else is there pretty much. So you've got Nikita Khrushchev of the Soviet Union. You've got, um, uh, President Eisenhower, uh, the British Prime Minister, Harold Macmillan goes, uh, most of the leaders of, um, of, uh, Eastern and Central Europe are there. Um, Fidel, uh, Fidel goes, um, and and then you have these uh, kind of luminaries, I suppose, of the global uh, South. So you have uh, Nehru, uh, Nasser, and um, Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana, who are there. So all of these kind of iconic figures, iconic world leaders, representing you know the, the communist uh, bloc, uh, the, uh, the West, the Western Alliance, and uh, the kind of leading figures of the um, anti-colonial movement are, are all there in New York for this 15th General um, General Assembly. So it's a kind of an extraordinary uh, gathering of these world leaders, really. Okay. So same day, 18th September, Castro yeah. arrives in the US. Can you talk us through his departure and the arrival? Yeah, so, I mean, he sets off from um, Havana Airport in the morning of um, Sunday the, um, the 18th. He's He's kind of um, waved off by a huge crowd of um, of, of, of Cubans, uh, supporters of the revolution. Um, his mother's there to, to bid him farewell. Um, his brother Raúl is there, who is, um, and as, as Fidel gets onto the plane, he kind of um, uh, 
in a kind of, um, uh, you know, a, a, a richly symbolic gesture. He kind of hands over his, um, his gun and his um, belt of bullets to his brother um, uh, as a kind of a sign that Raoul's going to be kind of holding the fort uh, for him. Um, they set off, there's a, I mean, the, the, the delegation that goes to the UN is huge as uh, know, 70 or 80 people um, in total. And um, yeah, the plane, the plane, um, you know, heads off into the, into the, into the, into the sky and almost immediately Fidel starts to worry about kind of security precautions. He, he turns to some of the people around him and says, you know, have we, have we arranged for a kind of a, um, a Cuban escort to protect us? And when he's told no, he gets kind of worried that um, he sort of says, well, if I was the Americans, I would shoot us out of the sky you know, and, and claim it was an accident. And then he gets startled a bit later on when um, a couple of US uh, jets appear um, appear nearby. But by that point, they're, they're pretty much over US territory and Fidel kind of figures out that they're not going to shoot the plane down over the United States. So they start to relax. They arrive quite late at, at Idlewild Airport, which is modern day JFK in Queens because the weather's foul. So they spend a lot of time kind of circling, uh, trying to decide whether they need to divert. They're eventually allowed to to land at Idlewild, and um, uh, you know a, lar- a relatively large crowd of, of supporters of the of the Cuban Revolution have assembled at, at the airport to greet Fidel. The authorities, the NYPD, are really reluctant to allow this kind of show of support, so they they kind of force the Cuban plane to taxi far away and um, only allow a couple of hundred supporters to get nearby. They kind of fence them in behind some chicken wire and. Um, uh, you know, Fidel and his entourage, they they um, they come down the aircraft steps, they get into the waiting um, uh, motor cars. As, as Fidel's car passes by the the supporters who are kind of fenced in, he orders the car, orders his driver to stop and tries to exit the vehicle because he wants to go and greet the crowd. And, and the NYPD at this point, they essentially manhandle him. They, they shove him back into the car. They force the car to carry on. And, and that, that's a kind of a signal, really. Uh, it's a very telling, I think, moment because it, it really shows, really, that the the Americans, you know, they're not they're not happy that Fidel is there. They don't really want him to be there, and they're they're not really going to roll out the red carpet. In fact, they're going to do the opposite. They're going to go out of their way, really, to make it clear that he's not a guest of the American government. He's only there because of the UN General Assembly. Um, the, the motorcade, you know, makes its way out of the airport and 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 heads to Manhattan. Uh, and again, you know, supporters of the revolution have gathered on the on the on the freeways to um, to kind of wave and uh, um, and uh, kind of shout slogans of support. And and there's quite a large crowd of supporters that have gathered outside the Shelburne Hotel in Midtown, which is where the Cuban delegation initially um, initially stay. So he's you know he's met with a you know pretty sizable um, crowd of supporters, but but they are supporters of the revolution. They're mostly Cuban Americans or some Dominicans and some, um, you know, uh, you know, U.S. based, uh, you know, U.S. supporters of the Cuban Revolution. Um, uh, but it's 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 it's. Uh, I mean, he'd been to New York the year before in the spring of 1959 as part of a wider tour of North America, and and then he'd been greeted by huge crowds of Americans of all kinds had, had turned out in New York when he visited. Uh, this time, he gets a positive reception, but it's a very kind of particular slice of of New York that's turned out to greet him. Well, I really want to know how does his reset, or how does his arrival compare to Khrushchev? Yeah, so Khrushchev turns up the next day. Uh, he arrives by boat, uh, arrives on a steam uh, a steam liner, the um, uh, the Baltica, and uh, again, I mean, the weather's terrible again. So he arrives in the rain. It's a pretty drab affair, 
because he's been um, keen to save money, they, uh, they, they, the ship uh, uh, pulls up at a very shabby uh, pier in Lower Manhattan with the, you know, the roof is leaking. Um, as Khrushchev delivers his remarks, uh, raindrops are falling on his, um, on his head. It's a very kind of low-key, quite shabby arrival. Um, he has been greeted by some diplomatic dignitaries. The, the, uh, the, the leaders of um, Czechoslovakia and, and Poland are there to, to formally welcome uh, welcome him, but most of the people who are there are are protesters. Um, so as the ship um, approaches New York Harbor, there's a kind of a, a sort of makeshift flotilla of uh, small ships, um, populated mainly by um, Eastern and Central European exiles, who predictably, I suppose, denounce Khrushchev as a as a murderer, as a man with blood on his hands. And again, you know, when when he arrives at, at um, I think it's Pier seventy three in um, uh, in uh, in Lower Manhattan, um, you know, crowds nearby of of, uh, of uh, Eastern and Central European um, uh, exiles or, or, or um, you know Polish and Hungarian Americans are there, jeering, catcalling, whistling. They've got a lot of um, you know um, very kind of uh, vivid uh, kind of posters and banners that predict that, that, that portray Khrushchev as a as, as a man with blood on his hands. So he gets a very low, it's, it's a reception which is low key and hostile and shabby, I suppose. I'm gonna have to throw a comment in here because um, of course I would have been one of those protesting out <laughs> there at Gustav's arrival. <laughs> um, and I probably wouldn't be surprised if my family was involved in that too, you know, uh, being Polish exiles in, in the US. But I just find it so mind blowing that you've got, uh, I mean, I don't find it mind blowing actually, that's a total lie. You've got, Castro on one hand, these crowds are, are shouting and, and, and happy and celebrating and supporting. And then you've got the total opposite for Khrushchev. I just find that really interesting. Yeah. And again, it's a big contrast because, uh, you know, he'd been in, in, um, in, in, uh, in the United States the year before. He'd been in New York and, you know, tens, of, tens and tens of thousands of New Yorkers had turned out to greet Khrushchev, to, to see him, to glimpse him. Um, and of course, there have been protests too because of the, you know, the, the memory of the Hungarian uprising, and the crushing of that was still very um, fresh. But he he had received a much warmer welcome a year before, and I think it's a testament to the really rapid deterioration in in relations that had taken place since the the shooting down of the U two in May of nineteen sixty that that explains that. And and you know, for both for both Khrushchev and uh, Fidel, you know, the U.S. government is clear all along that they're not guests of the of the U.S. government. They're only in New York under forbearance because of the UN General Assembly. And in fact, the, the US um, authorities place restrictions on both Fidel and Khrushchev. And they basically say that they can't leave Manhattan, uh, f- allegedly for their own security. So they're kind of, um, yeah, it's kind of made made clear that they're unwelcome. And so in a way, it's not, not surprising that Khrushchev gets such a, um, a, a rough um a rough reception you know there's no one there's no one from the american government there to greet him for example um there's a you know a, um there's this canadian american industrialist cyrus vance who's um one of the few capitalists in america who's keen on um uh, some some f- sort of form of peaceful coexistence and there's a um a leading un official who's there but aside from the eastern european um leaders it's 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 a kind of hecklers basically but you don't need to leave Manhattan to get to Harlem. Uh, 19th no. <laughs> September, Castro meets with Malcolm X. But before this historic meeting, Cubans change hotels. What, what happened? 
Yeah, so this is one of the key moments, really. So the uh, the Cuban delegation had found it very hard to find accommodation in New York, um, and you know a lot of hotels wouldn't take them. They came up with various excuses. They didn't have enough space, you know, blah blah blah. And it became a quite a, a diplomatic embarrassment for the United States. So eventually, State Department officials essentially force Edward Spatz, who's the owner of the Shelburne Hotel in Midtown, to take in the Cuban delegation, which he which he does. He agrees to do it, but he does so very reluctantly, and, and his reluctance is very public. So he he makes these statements that you know, I don't really want the Cubans here, but I have to take them. You know, I, I dislike the Cuban revolution. I'm totally opposed to it. I hate the Cubans, you know, all this kind of stuff. So it's not surprising that their stay at the Shelburne is not particularly, it's not a particularly positive experience. You know, if they were going to leave a sort of, um, uh, you know, an online review these days, it would have been a one star, maybe a, maybe a zero star re- review. They're, they're not made to feel very uh, welcome. And the thing that specifically triggers their departure is when uh, there are all these rumors flying around that the Cubans are you know, plucking and cooking chickens in their hotel rooms, that they're stubbing out cigars on the carpet, that they're damaging the furniture. And so Spatz uh, demands an additional, I think it's an additional $10,000 security deposit, um, which offends the Cubans. And then the offense is kind of magnified even more when they present the hotel management with a Cuban bond and they're told, you know, this looks a bit dodgy to us, we're not going to accept it. And at that point, uh, Fidel says, right, we're off. Um, he, he, he holds an impromptu press conference at the hotel and tells the assembled journalists that, you know, they've been insulted. They're not going to stick this anymore. Uh, that if necessary, they'll sleep in Central Park. Uh, he says, that, you know, we're a mountain people. We're used to sleeping in the, in the fresh air. And then they head off to the UN headquarters and Fidel meets with Dag um, Hammarskjöld, the UN Secretary General, and... Um, uh, says, well, you know, we can we can sleep here in the UN if 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 need, needs be, and um, eventually they um, receive an offer from the Hotel Teresa, um, this kind of landmark, uh, iconic building in the very heart of of Harlem, that occupies symbolically, I think the um, it's at the centre of of Harlem's political and cultural uh, life, and so you know, late that night, approaching midnight on the the nineteenth, they 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 rock up at the Hotel Teresa, and they've barely had time to unload the luggage when Malcolm X um, comes calling. And, and he's the first of a succession of, 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 uh, of high-profile guests who kind of make the pilgrimage to the Hotel Teresa. So tell us about that meeting with Malcolm X. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it, it's, it's quite short. It, it lasts for about half an hour. It takes place in, ho- in, in Fidel's hotel uh, suite. There's very little furniture in the room, so the, um, the two men basically perch at the edge of the of the bed, um, they um, they talk about um, you know a range of things. They talk about the um, uh, they talk about racial inequality. They talk and and, and the, the struggle for racial um, uh, equality and racial and racial justice. This is a a kind of key a topic because um, shortly on coming to power in um, in Cuba, just weeks after coming to power in Cuba, Fidel had committed his government to eradicating racial discrimination on the island. And um, the spring of 1960 in America is seeing the, a, a real sort of um, uptick in the civil rights movement. The, 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 um, the lunch counter sit-ins uh, begin in the spring of 1960. So, so these are, um, this question of racial equality is, is really um, 
you know, it's in the news at the, at the time. So they talk about racial equality, the struggle for racial justice. They, they talk about the very warm reception that Fidel has already encountered on moving to Harlem. I mean, word of the Cubans moved to the Teresa uh, breaks very quickly. And, and by the time Fidel arrives, there are hundreds of, of people outside the hotel to see him, to cheer him on. Uh, they talk about their shared opposition to um, imperialism. They talk about the crisis that's un unfolding in the Congo. I mean, none of these topics they discuss in any great depth. You know, I mean, Malcolm doesn't speak Spanish. Fidel's English is very poor. Um, it's, it's really, um, uh, I think what's really important about the the, the, the meeting is, is less what is said and more um, the fact that they're meeting in the first place and the fact that they get they clearly get on really well so they're kind of the uh, they, they, should, they, they clearly have a really good kind of chemistry if you see the, there's some great photos taken of them of the meeting and the, the two guys you know Fidel and Malcolm they're kind of beaming they're smiling they're they're, they're clearly getting on really really uh, really well um, uh, uh, I think on, on leaving the, the hotel Malcolm later said that um Fidel was the only white person that, that he ever that he ever really liked, um, and you get that sense of warmth from the images of of, of the meeting, um, and, the, and the photos are fantastic, and and you know they kind of encapsulate really these two great figures of the nineteen sixties, the these two figures who represent, you know, different strands of the kind of revolutionary tradition, as it emerges in the nineteen sixties. You know, Fidel, the icon of the anti-imperialist left, and, and and Malcolm, you know, one of the world's most most famous black black nationalists. And so really, it's, it's the fact of the meeting itself, which is, which is really critical. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I think. So, September the 20th, Castro meets face to face with Khrushchev. What was the relationship like between Cuba and the Soviet Union? And more importantly, what happened at this meeting? Yeah, so I think that during 1960, at the same time that Cuban American relations are in decline, uh, Cuba's relationship with the Soviet Union is starting to uh, gain um, uh, gain uh, traction, and that's partly because you know, as as Cuba feels its um, its um, that its relationship with the United States is de deteriorating, it's 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 looking for new alliances for for other countries that it can draw close to, for economic um, for an economic relationship, but also um, potentially to offer it some kind of um, uh, some kind of security and for example to uh, find ways to to purchase um, uh, 
military equipment and, and arms. Um, so um, one of uh, Khrushchev's key uh, troubleshooters, um, uh, Anastas Mikoyan, and he um, visits Cuba, I think in February of 19, uh, February of 1960. And this is the start really of a kind of um, gradual um, uh, uh, sort of closening, I suppose, of, of this relationship. You know, so um, um, so that's been happening prior to the to the to this first face to face meeting between Fidel and uh, Khrushchev. And um, uh, you know, the Cubans had offered to go down to the the Soviet mission on on Park Avenue and meet with the with the, the Soviets there. But but Khrushchev was having none of that. He was determined to go to Harlem, to go to the Teresa, and he wanted to do that for several reasons. One, um, in order to Kind of make a point about American racial discrimination and to put the Soviet Union on the side of um, the African American freedom struggle, um, but also and, and he knew that by doing that it would kind of embarrass the the Americans, um, and he also wanted to go to to Harlem as a deliberate show, show of solidarity with Fidel and the Cuban delegation. So he um, yeah he travels there on um, on um, on Tuesday the twentieth. And again, the meeting, the, the meeting that takes place in the Teresa in um, Fidel's um, hotel uh, suite is, is short. It lasts for about 30 or 40 minutes. Um, you know, they, they, they talk about, um, you know, so Fidel says, oh, he's really grateful that, that Khrushchev has come up to, uh, he's really honored that Khrushchev has taken the trouble to come up to, to Harlem to visit him. And this, you know, this um, reflects really well on, 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 on Khrushchev and also is, um, you know, a, a sign of, of the, the high regard in which the Cuban Revolution is 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 is, um, is held. They talk again about the warmth of the reception that the Cubans have had in um, in Harlem. They talk about um, um, uh, their opposition to American in, in, in imperialism. They they exchange invitations to visit each other's um, uh, uh, countries. Um, Fidel uh, goes out of his way to say that the only reason he's come to uh, New York in person to attend the General Assembly is because Khrushchev decided to go in person himself as well. So it's a bit of a sort of a Cuban-Soviet loving, I suppose. Um, and uh, again, the, the the mood music, the personal chemistry is really is really is really positive. The, the two get on um, seem to get on really well. When they emerge from the hotel, you know, they're they're both smiling. They kind of uh, put on a bit of a show for the for the media. They engage in a slightly awkward embrace. I mean, Fidel is thin and very tall and Khrushchev is neither of those things. So the, the kind of the, the hug between them is slightly, uh, slightly awkward. Uh, uh, Khrushchev describes being sort of enveloped by, uh, by, by Fidel, but you know, it's, it's, it's uh, the symbolism of that, um, that moment when the, the two men emerge from the hotel, um, you know, beaming, embracing that really, I think, uh, sends out a powerful signal about, um, the relationship, this strong relationship, which is now merging between Cuba and the Soviet Union. There's so much we could talk about. I had to be so selective <laughs> when asking these questions. So I've decided to move on slightly forward about two days mm -hmm. uh, on the 22nd of September, because over the next few days, Castro meets with people um, like the civil rights leader, um, uh, El Joseph Overton, <clears throat> their violent clashes between Castro supporters and opponents as well. People end up end up being killed. But moving on to the 22nd of September, Eisenhower speaks at the General Assembly and he actually snubs the Cubans. How does Castro react to that? 
Yeah, so after 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 Eisenhower's own um, speech at the General Assembly, he hosts um, a lunch for the leaders of the uh, delegations from Latin America, but he very deliberately excludes the Cubans from that invitation. So um, he refuses to um, invite the Cubans along um, to the Waldorf, Astor uh, the very fancy hotel, the Waldorf, Astor um, Waldorf Astoria Hotel, where um, this lunch takes place. And and so, um, you know, Fidel, um, you know, he's, he's, he's just brilliant at sort of um, doing kind of public relations on the, on the, on the hoof, really. So um, he goes back to the hotel Teresa and he treats the, the, the mainly African-American employees of the hotel to lunch. He buys them beers, he buys them steaks. And of course, he makes, makes sure to invite the press along to take photographs. And he makes a great play out of the fact that he's not at all, um, uh, you know, insulted by the, the snub from Eisenhower. And he makes a great thing about how actually he's much happier to be eating lunch among the kind of humble, poor people of Harlem than with the... Um, the, the U.S. imperialist. So, he, you know, he, he turns, you know, what has been designed to be a, a snub into a, a sort of brilliant, um, a brilliant kind of PR retort, really. Um, and, um, you know, comes across, you know, comes across as the better person, really, you know, um, and I, I guess has a lot of fun with being uh, not invited to this, you know, official um, reception. I could just see Alex doing that. <laughs> It sounds like exactly the kind of thing I do. Let's just punk the lot of them. Uh, the following day, it's Khrushchev's turn to speak. Does he use this moment to push communist propaganda and does this strengthen his relationship with Castro? In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I mean, uh, it's, it might depend what you mean by a communist uh, propaganda. He certainly uh, uh, makes a speech that um, interprets the world from Moscow's from Moscow's point of, of uh, point of view. Well, the leader wrote these questions in general. Yeah, no, no, no. Now, this period of history in communist propaganda, she means every time a Russian opens their mouth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he makes a big thing about support for uh, for anti-colonialism. You know, and, and, and his critics, of course, point out, you know, how can the Soviet Union be uh, against colonialism when it's occupying all of these countries in, in Eastern and Central Europe? But um, that's a, a related a related point but yeah he he makes a big thing about welcoming the new african nations about pledging moscow support to uh to continuing efforts to um as he puts it to bury um uh, to bury western colonialism um he calls for peaceful coexistence but at the same time attacks america's proposals for disarmament as nothing short of organized international espionage he has a big thing about attacking Dag um, Hammarskjöld and attacking the way that the UN is organised. He's got this plan to replace the Secretary General with a sort of triumvirate. He, he wants someone representing the West, someone representing the Communist Bloc, and someone representing the the Global South to run the UN in, instead. So he spends a lot of the speech attacking, at least indirectly, Dag um, 
Hammarskjöld, but he also goes out of his way to praise Cuba. Uh, uh, he, he, he describes it as uh, he, he describes Cuba as, as courageous. He praises the Cuban uh, uh, the Cuban Revolution, um, and um, he's very critical of the United States for. Uh, as he sees it, for kind of intriguing against the Cuban Revolution, for seeking to undermine the revolution, for threatening it, uh, for behaving in an aggressive way towards the new government in uh, Havana, and um, is essentially, you know, saying that you know the the UN needs to be um, on its on its guard, I guess, against a uh, against a possible American attempt to overthrow the the uh, the. Um, the government of Fidel Castro. So, um, in terms of his relationship with Fidel and the Soviet Union's relationship with with Cuba, you know, he makes a big thing in the speech of of praising Cuba and of of, of kind of putting uh, Moscow's backing behind uh, behind the um, the revolutionary um, uh, the revolutionary government there. So, finally, on the twenty sixth, after we've had Eisenhower, we've had Khrushchev. It is now Castro's turn to speak. And how is his speech received? Well, I think it's received in the hall in an increasingly, um, a mood of increasing sort of tiredness. It goes on for four and a half hours. It's still a record. It hasn't been broken uh, yet by um, a a world leader. Um, And um, so, you know, people start to drift out. Some, Some people drift off as well. Um, just because of the length of the of 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 of, of the of the speech, um, it's it's a very um, and it's delivered mostly from memory. He barely has any notes, you know. And um, at the very start of the speech, he says, "You know, don't worry, I'm going to be I'm going to be brief." <laughs> and then four and a half hours later, he steps down he from died. the podium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got, got that wrong. So uh, the speech has lots of things in it, as you might uh, uh, you might be able to guess. One of them is a, is a very lengthy sort of history of American imperialism in Latin America. Uh, so not just about their treatment of Cuba over the previous century or so, but um, the whole kind of um, long and uh, inglorious involvement of the United States in um, in, um, in in Latin America, and 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 then he goes on to l- launch a, a lengthy defense of the Cuban Revolution and its achievements, um, before kind of ending really with. Um, an attempt to place the Cuban revolution on the side of the broader movement against Western imperialism. And, and one of Castro's most interesting arguments really um, is that, you know, it's all very well to talk about independence and to give a country a new flag, a national anthem, um, uh, a kind of, a, uh, uh, you know, the sort of paraphernalia of, 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 of sovereignty. But unless you have economic power, unless you have economic independence, you're going to be beholden to, you know, the United States, basically. Um, and so uh, one of the things he, he calls for in the speech is for uh, meaningful independence from Western colonialism, not just a kind of token in- independence, I suppose. In terms of the, the kind of response to the speech, a lot of the immediate reaction to it in the newspapers and so on focuses on its inordinate length, you know, and, and kind of makes a bit of a joke of it, you know, oh, you know, Fidel goes on and on and kind of bores his audience to uh, to death, but if you look at what some um, diplomats are saying, but sort of behind the scenes, particularly in the days after the speech, um, they start to say, "Well, actually, you know, it, it went on for too long, of course." But actually, many of the delegates from Latin America, in private, agreed with a lot of what Fidel was saying, and um, some of the uh, leaders of the new um, countries from 
Africa, you know, privately were, were much more sympathetic to what Fidel was saying about the need for, you know, economic independence, for example. So I think the, 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 the reaction to the speech is kind of twofold. There's the immediate reaction, which is, you know, this is Fidel who just talks for too long and bores everybody and, and, and people kind of, you know, sort of drift off or whatever. Um, and it's just a sort of tirade. Um, and then there's the, the, the more reflective, I think, response uh, among, even among people, you know, British diplomats, American diplomats who are not at all sympathetic towards Fidel's revolution, who nevertheless, on reflection, think, well, actually, you know, Fidel's, the substance of Fidel's speech was, was actually, um, you know, reasonably um, effective and maybe more important than we, the initial kind of reaction would have would have suggested. Okay, so Castro spends the following days trying to ease Cold War tensions. Are his tactics successful? And when Alex, I sent you a message. Okay. That's the one we changed. Sorry. Okay. Okay, so where does Fidel end up on the world stage? Yeah, so I think that Fidel used this trip uh, deliberately to try to... Um, uh, kind of boost the standing not just of him, of himself as the leader of the Cuban Revolution, but of the status of the Cuban Revolution more more widely, and that's one of the main reasons that he that he goes to New York. I mean, he sees a great opportunity to cause mischief and to cause trouble for the for the United States. But what he really wants to do is to make a kind of a claim about the significance of the Cuban Revolution, and and because this Fifteenth General Assembly is such a big moment in kind of post-war diplomacy and because it's the year of Africa it off and because all of these leaders are going to be there it offers this sort of unparalleled platform on which to do that and Fidel is delighted because he uses the trip to meet not just with um, uh, with uh, with uh, Nikita Khrushchev but also with other world leaders so you know uh, NASA goes up to the Hotel Teresa to meet with him Nehru goes up there Fidel um, goes and visits um, Kwame and Krumah at the Ghanaian mission shortly before he heads back to, to Cuba. And he makes sure, you know, on all these occasions that he's seen with these leaders, he's photographed with them. Um, and so, you know, he's kind of mixing it with these, with these great figures. And in doing that, you know, he's making a claim that he's an equal to these icons of, um, of the, um, the global struggle against Western um, colonialism. You know, people like Nehru, Nasser and, and Nkrumah, these are the giants really of the, what becomes ultimately the non-aligned uh, uh, movement. And so I think, you know, Fidel travels back to Havana. I mean, he travels back on, a, on this, the symbolism is everything here, right? He, he has to travel back on, a, on, a, on, an air, on an airplane that's been lent to him by the Soviet Union because his own plane has been impounded temporarily by the American authorities over claims that the, um, the nationalized Cuban air, um, uh, um, uh, you know, air company owes uh, creditors in the United States money. Um, so he, he takes the offer from Khrushchev to fly back on a Soviet jet instead. So he travels back to Havana with the relationship between Cuba and the Soviet Union strengthened by this, you know, th these tremendous encounters he has with, 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 Khrush with Khrushchev. But also, I think, with the sense that he's really succeeded in, in making a claim, a, a bigger claim about the Cuban uh, revolution and and his own place really among these other leaders of the global south. So from, from Fidel's point of view, I think the trip to New York was a, was a huge success. And also, of course, he had great fun annoying the hell out of the Americans by, you know, relocating to Harlem and then, and then um, 
having this whole circus outside the Hotel Teresa for the, the majority of his, uh, his stay there. Simon, thank you so much for joining us. That was so enlightening. I loved this. You know, we don't get to talk about communism enough on this podcast. <laughs> Alex has to rein me in half the time, either communism or, or something. She's like, stop it. She can't be no. trusted. She's, she has no balance when it comes to talking about Russia whatsoever. <laughs> we forgive her. She's Polish. She's, she's got beef. No, 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 that's fine. Yeah, she's got, got skin in the game, as they say. And, uh, you know, I mean... Um... There's a great incident later on in the General Assembly when, um, you know, uh, I think a delegate from the Philippines gives a speech where they, they say, you know, well, you know, we've heard a lot from the Soviet Union attacking imperialism, but, you know, this is just hypocrisy because you're occupying, you know, Poland and Hungary and so on. And that's when Khrushchev jumps up, goes crazy and starts banging his shoe on the not very intimidating individual, is he? Yeah, yeah. But, but Khrushchev is a great character. I mean, he's, he's good value. You know, he gives these, he's constantly giving these sort of um, impromptu press conferences from the balcony of the Soviet mission or outside the kind of, um, they have like a, a, a sort of retreat, retreat on Long Island that he's able to get permission to go to on one of the weekends. And um, yeah, he, he, he makes for great copy. He gives a great, you know, he's, he's a very kind of funny kind of guy, right? Personally. So he gives some, um, you know, he, he, he's good entertainment um, in, in that sense, in that sense. Um, um, but he's very unpredictable. So, you know, he can be charm personified in one meeting and then he can be red, red faced and bashing his shoe on the desk the next. You never quite know what you're going to get with him, which is one of his reasons why he's such an appealing kind of historical figure to write about, really. I love about um, Castro, that kind of, right, you've let me in, probably not going to let me in again. You hate my guts. So, damn it, I'm going to say what I've got to say, even if it lasts all day. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, I, th I think he goes back to this... Uh, the states back to new york in, in the 1970s to speak at the un but that's that's really the only opportunity he gets to go because um you know the us are never going to invite him as a yeah. as, as, as a visiting guest themselves i'm doing um, route 66 it'll be fun <laughs> you are oh, oh he wants oh, to yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 well him, the irony about castro one of the ironies about him is he's a big Ameri he's a big fan of, of the united states i mean he he visited several times you know, earlier in his life, including going going to New York for his honeymoon in 1948. And, um, you know, he loved baseball, um, you know, and, and he always claimed that, you know, he didn't have any gripe with the American people. It was with the American uh, government. I mean, the great sort of what if is, you know, if the Eisenhower administration had been a bit less sort of flat footed about all of this, whether some kind of, I mean, there's always going to be some conflict with Cuba because of Castro's determination to take a measure of economic control, which would have always challenged American economic interests. But, you know, Eisenhower is just so flat-footed and sort of tin-eared about this, you know. I mean, McMillan, who we didn't talk about, I mean, he, he's great in New York, right? So he, um, everyone else is travelling to the UN by motorcade and he makes a point of sort of walking there just with a single detective for protection. And then, you know, when he gets into the General Assembly Hall, he sees NASA, you know, the great sort of um, humiliator of britain over suez right and, and he makes you know, and he makes a big thing of going over to nasa and shaking him by the hand and being all sorts of you know old etonian charm and everything and you just think you know you know a bit of a bit of um you know a bit of friendliness might have gone a bit further really mm. um but there we are he didn't <laughs> yeah it's fantastic we will put it in our online bookshop so people can thanks yeah you and support history hack and not give amazon any more money which is good for everybody yeah what are you working on next 
Yeah, so I've just started a project. I'm writing, trying to write about three, three journalists, um, John Reed, who wrote about the Russian Revolution, um, Edgar Snow, who wrote about Mao and the Chinese revolutionaries, and Herbert Matthews, who wrote about the Cuban uh, Revolution. And it's, it's about the, 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 and all three of them kind of um, embarked on extraordinary journeys in order to, to write about the revolutions that, and the revolutionaries that they witnessed. So it's partly about their, um, how they secured their kind of scoops, but then also how their reporting of those revolutions kind of frame those events for a Western audience, particularly in the United States. So yeah, it's kind of three revolutionaries, three journalists, three, three journeys. Yeah. That's, that's the idea. Yeah. Elena's bouncing up and down. Like a <laughs> Look at her. You mentioned Edgar Snow and I, I'm dying to do a podcast on Edgar Snow. Like literally I'm salivating right now. You need to come back and then <laughs> finish the book first, Alina. Yeah, yeah. Finish yes, the book and then yeah. I want yeah. one just on Edgar Snow. The other two can do one, but I want <laughs> Edgar Snow. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I haven't really started on him yet, but he seems absolutely fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, an extraordinary kind of character, you know. I think he starts out in advertising and then ends up, you know, in the mountains um, after the long march interviewing Mao and then becomes you know i mean his um yeah ends up having a tough time during the early cold war because he's accused of you know helping to kind of hand um beijing to the uh, to the kremlin really but uh, yeah yeah i mean he seems like a really intriguing kind of character so i'm looking forward to getting stuck into into that into that side of stuff too yeah but they're all i mean all those journalists are, are, you know i guess you have to be a kind of great character in order to be able to secure these kind of scoops really so they're um and, and all of them are, end up writing as kind of interested participants uh, rather than as sort of disinterested observers, really. Um, and all of them get, you know, hounded by the American right for their sort of leftist um, sympathies, really. So, there's, yeah, it, it, I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to getting into that. Yeah. Brilliant. We'll let you get on. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't think I'm going to do any on it today, but thank you. Yeah. <laughs> you can help us at History Hack by joining us via Patreon. It takes quite a lot of effort and a lot of work off quite a big team now to keep us going and so if you could donate as little as three pounds a month it would be massively appreciated by all of us there's different levels because princess marcus has set it all up with uh, varying rewards and things so do have a look do join us there's uh, an exclusive facebook group as well and you could be part of all of it when our guests join us to talk about their work in their new book the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts so to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.